Please open your scriptures to 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. You'll find this on page 1304 of your pew Bible. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Give ear to God's Word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, bless the reading and the preaching of Your Holy Word. Would You open up the hearts of Your people to receive it by faith, and would You cause it to bear great fruit by Your Holy Spirit in their lives for Your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Apostle John calls to the Beloved. If you've ever received a letter in which you were addressed, Beloved, you'll immediately sense and feel and perceive the effect of this term. He's not writing with a distant formality. He doesn't say, to to whom it may concern. Rather, John expresses his near familiarity and his affectionate pastoral love for those to whom he writes. Beloved is a term of endearment. John wants them to know that he loves them. And more than this, that they are beloved also by God. Perhaps my favorite feature of these terms, beloved children, my little children, John has several of them, is that they're completely superfluous from a grammatical standpoint. They are not necessary. Uh, The text would be completely understandable without them. But so that the people of God, the covenant communities to whom the apostle writes, would know how they are regarded by him and by God. He writes, Beloved. Now, John's immediate audience are the churches 
of Asia Minor. And yet, as an apostle, we know that he writes to all churches in all places throughout all ages, including this one here. And so we are beloved, beloved of the apostle, beloved of God. Well, having called to the beloved, the apostle exhorts, let us love one another. It's interesting, John doesn't really command love here. Rather, he's expressing his desire for his beloved to join him as subjects in this work of loving one another. It's not a command, but an expression of his own desire, which he himself is joined in as a subject. Moreover, this love is to be active. You'll notice it anticipates an object. Uh, The apostle does not call himself or his beloved to merely be loving in the abstract, but rather concretely he says, let us love one another. The objects of this love are one another. In other words, we should love other members of the covenant community. The word is reciprocal. It refers to other Christians. Accordingly, it does not refer to a reflexive love of self. He's not saying you love yourself. Nor is he even really talking about a general love for others, uh, the unbelievers outside the covenant community. Uh, John's not discarding the duty of love to others. Jesus himself affirmed that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, even that we should love our enemies. Certainly we must do one without neglecting the other. And yet to encourage one duty is not to excuse another. There is a general love that Christians ought to have for all people. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, Paul writes elsewhere. Uh, But John's call here for Christians is for us to love other members in the covenant community. Let us have a special love for those who are of the household of faith. And what reason, what cause does the apostle give us in order to motivate our love for one another? The apostle's a good teacher. He doesn't just give an exhortation. He gives grounds and arguments so that we would be encouraged in our ability uh, to do so. And I would point out that he does not point us to any reason within the covenant community itself. Instead, he lifts our eyes upward to see from where love comes. Love, he says, comes from God. If you could see a line and trace it, you would find its beginning not in man, but in God. What is significant about this thought? We, we need to think about this for a moment. Uh, we tend to think of love primarily in terms of our own human emotions. Love is that affectionate feeling you have for your spouse or for your child, uh, even a, a fellow citizen, a countryman, a, a close friend. And this is true insofar as it goes. The problem is that that it does not go far enough. 
Our problem is that these conceptions of love fall short. When we think of love apart from, without reference to God, we fail to understand what love truly is. I think this is perhaps an explanation as to why love is now being defined in self-referential terms as a tautology. Love is love is love is a meaningless statement. Love, whatever it is, must be understood with reference first and foremost, not to man, but to God. Love is from God. Love comes from God as a source. And as a consequence of this fact, so does the one who loves. John tells us, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The positive statement here highlights the close relationship between God's love and our love for others. Conversely, the negative statement that follows, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, really serves to underline that first positive statement. It's by setting the, the, the love of God in contrast to the, the person who does not love that we really see, we, we start to understand uh, what it means to love. Well, Scripture teaches us, and so we believe that God, by His Spirit, has effectually called us out of sin and death and into a state of grace and salvation. He has enlightened our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He has taken away our heart of stone and He has given us a heart of flesh. He has renewed our wills, and this is what we believe being born of God means. But the question is, how can we know whether we have experienced this new birth? Being born of God, being born from above, being born again. Regeneration. How can we know whether we have experienced this spiritual reality? Well, no doubt most of you have been issued a physical birth certificate at the time of your natural birth. And besides this, your general knowledge of human reproduction and the obvious fact of your physical existence furnishes for most, perhaps not the, the most, uh, the, the greatest of skeptics, they may still be un- unconvinced, we live in a simulation, something like that, but uh, for most reasonable people, these are sufficient evidences that you have been born. But what evidence is there for the spiritual birth? If you've read John's epistles, you'll see that he's actually really interested in this question. And I hope that you are as well. In fact, I know some of you are. Uh, Perhaps you have doubts concerning your own spiritual condition or else the condition of your spouse or of your children, of your parents of a close friend, I trust you will give me your attention for a moment. The preeminent evidence that certifies spiritual life is love. It's not the only evidence. John indicates elsewhere that there are other evidences from which we may draw our assurances and resolve our doubts Uh, The evidence of right doctrine, believing the right things. The evidence of obedience, walking in God's law. 
These are also evidences that you have been born again. But I I don't think I'm wrong to say that love is preeminent among these evidences. I say this in part because it's, it's the substantial emphasis of John's epistle generally, and especially this section in which we now are. John places on love a great emphasis in his letters. He writes about love far more than any of the other evidences. His chief concern for the churches, for his beloved, is that they would evidence the new birth by their love for one another. As a confessional Reformed church, we, we tend to be people who are pretty zealous about true and right doctrine. I doubt you're going to find many other congregations in Greenville uh, that confess the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Standards, with as much understanding and conviction and passion and vigor as you will find here. Morning worship services, you're a boisterous crowd when we start confessing the creeds, and I love it. You won't find many other churches with expositional sermons as extensively exegetical and doctrinal as you will find here. We're unashamedly committed to the truths of the Bible, and I suspect that if you're a member here, you share these convictions. But I would say that without love, knowledge is not any evidence of spiritual life. And neither is living an outwardly moral life. Holding fast to true doctrine and walking in obedience are necessary and good, but they are not sufficient. Scripture elsewhere testifies in this way. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these, Scripture says, is love. And so love is the preeminent evidence of the new birth. Whoever loves has been born of God. And John adds, and knows God. He's referring here to the the relationship that results from the new birth. If you have been born again, God acted once upon you. You were passive in it. And it was complete in a moment. But with this new nature, you now enjoy an active and ongoing relationship with God, communion with Him. And the evidence 
that this relationship exists is the same as the new birth. Love evidences the beginning of your spiritual life, and love evidences the continuation of that spiritual life. Many people believe that they know God because they read their Bibles and pray, or because they participate in church, and those are all good things. The problem is that none of these things are a sure evidence that you know God. You can have your name on the church rolls. You can sit in a pew Lord's Day morning and Lord's Day evening. You can stand with the congregation. You can serve on committees and be on the session. But if your life is not substantially characterized by a genuine, sincere love for God's people, you are not a Christian. We make that more direct. If your life is not characterized by a sincere and genuine love for these people, the people to your left, the people to your right, these covenant children, these elderly saints, for these people of God, if you do not love them, you are not a Christian. This is why the apostle declares, anyone who does not Love does not know God. John's not merely calling into question such a person's relationship with God as if perhaps maybe they might not be really saved. He writes with a confident clarity and certainty declaring that such a person definitely does not know God. A person like this is an unbeliever whatever he may profess, however long he may have been in church. If he does not have love, he does not know God. And the reason for his judgment is simple. Because God is love. Previously, we considered the love coming from God. God is the source of love from whom love comes and now we discover that God himself is love. See, love is not merely an affection or an experience that comes from God to the Creator. It is a divine perfection, an attribute of God himself. What is love? What is love? I think every good definition includes a genus and a differentia. Love is predicated to God in such a way that it cannot be defined apart from Him. It is in the category, that is the genus, of His divine perfections. It's there along with other divine perfections like wisdom, righteousness, goodness, mercy, and grace. It is differentiated from these other divine attributes by the objects upon which it acts. Love is the attribute of God by which He delights Himself in that which is good. God is love. 
He delights in himself as one who is perfectly good. He delights in his eternally begotten Son and his eternally preceding Holy Spirit. He did not create the world because he needed someone to love. He was not lonely. His love is eternal. He is love, and it was for his love that he himself, in his triune glory, created the world. As it's been said in this pulpit before and by many pastors before me, God's love has no beginning, and therefore it has no end. Well, what then does John mean here when he writes, in this the love of God was made manifest among us? If God's love is eternal, what does he mean, made manifest? He's pointing to us to the time when God portrayed his love conspicuously to his people. Now, had God never sent forth His Son into the world, uh, we could still perceive something of His love through His goodness generally towards His creatures. The Lord is good to all, Scripture says, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Uh, He's not left Himself without a witness, Paul says, for He does good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, the love of God to his creatures generally is portrayed in his divine providence and his provision for our material needs. But so that we might better understand his love, especially in its saving purposes for his people, God portrayed it to our senses in a singularly clear way. God sent his only son into the world. John points our eyes to this portrait of God's love. He speaks, of course, of the incarnation here when God the Father sent His only, that is, His only begotten, His unique, His Son of His nature into the world of fallen, unsinful men. John does not belabor here how, how the incarnation happened. But we know, believe, and confess that the Son took upon Himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities yet without sin. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance so that the two whole perfect and distinct natures that Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion." This is the how of the Incarnation as summarized in our Confession of Faith. But John proceeds here immediately to God's purpose in the Incarnation. Why did God the Father send His only Son into the world? It was so that we might live through Him. God's purpose for us is expressly here spiritual, eternal life through His Son. But I want us to think for a moment what this implies so that we might live through Him. It implies that we are not immediately in possession of this life. It implies that we are, by nature, 
dead in sin. This becomes all the more explicit in the next verse. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And again, John is portraying the love of God in the person and the work of His Son. And what is especially remarkable about God's love is that it is not grounded in our having loved Him. His love is extended to sinful creatures, those dead in sin who have not loved Him. Scripture testifies that we are hostile toward God, and our mind was set on the flesh We love darkness because our ways were evil. We were children, Scripture says, of the devil, and our desires was to do evil, his evil will. We did not submit to God's law. We did not love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. This is the greatest understatement I think we could possibly have in Scripture. We have not loved God. We hated God, and we would have killed Him if we had the opportunity. And in fact, we did. Even so, He loved us. See, this is what love looks like. Not quid pro quo, not you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, not if you love me, then I'll love you. God's love is unmerited unconditional, undeserved. We did nothing to earn this love. In fact, everything we did should have warranted the exact opposite, His holy, indignant, just wrath. Yet He loved us freely, gratuitously. And more than this, He loved us sacrificially. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is one of those Bible words related to the atonement that we don't really hear much about anymore. Here it refers to the sacrificial death of Jesus as it pertains to the satisfaction of God's just wrath against our sins. Related to it is expiation, the removal of our guilt. Really, the idea here is a covering of our sin. Propitiation is that which renders God propitious toward us. It doesn't actually affect any real change in Him, really. It's changing our situation in terms of our own guilt so that God could be consistent in in His character and be propitious towards us. He could not be except for by this propitiatory sacrifice. Propitiation is a result of expiation. God is rendered favorable towards us by this sacrifice. But I don't want us to miss the point here. We, we have a tendency, I think, in focusing so much on the death of Christ that we sometimes forget who sent Him. There's a caricature, a deformation of the gospel 
that is sometimes presented by preachers, that God the Father is unwilling to love, that He's angry and irate, and Jesus almost has to come and beg Him to just be a nicer God, to just love these people. And such a character divides the the perfect work of the Trinity. It renders the the, the Son in a position against the Father, the Father against the Son, as if there's some adversarial relationship. But no, God, the Father, He sent His Son. John's focus here is on how God the Father Himself exhibits His love. The Father loves us in this way. He sent His own Son freely and sacrificially for our sins. And so, first, the love that we are considering is a perfection of God. Second, God the Father has portrayed His love to us through His Son. And third and finally, He perfected His love in us by His Holy Spirit. Beloved, John writes, Beloved, I love it. If God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Holy Spirit. Once again, John calls out to his beloved, but now instead of exhorting us, he he advances an argument that obliges. The conditional statement here, if God so loved, refers us back to the previous portrait. God loved us in this way, that is, freely and sacrificially. This is the sense of the condition, and it's assumed to be true. God has loved us in this way. And so we also ought to love one another. Uh, The apostle's previous exhortation is now expressed emphatically as an obligation. John never really intended his previous exhortation uh, to be mere pious advice, only suggestive. But with this argument, he shows us more clearly that love for one another is Not only his desire for himself and for the churches of Asia Minor and for us, it's not just his desire, it's our duty to love. As recipients of God's love, we have each been bound together to love one another by a necessity of nature. What do I mean by this? God's love is not merely an example for us to follow. It is supernaturally effective in those who have received it. Previously, we considered how love is an evidence of our regeneration, of being born of God. It is an evidence of our ongoing relationship with God. And now the apostle shows us by what means this evidence is produced in us. No one has ever seen God. And you're starting to wonder, where where is John going with this? This doesn't seem connected to what he's saying at all. He goes on, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know 
but we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Holy Spirit. Our love for one another is evidence not only of our regeneration and of an ongoing relationship with God, but also of God's presence and the perfection of His love. God is spirit. What does, what does John mean? No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. He does not have a body like men. He is therefore invisible in his own being. And as a consequence of this fact, no one has ever seen God. We cannot perceive him with our human, fleshly, physical eyes. Last night I was up late in my office here, right above the sanctuary, working on my sermon. It was about 10 o'clock, I started hearing voices, not voices from heaven, voices from down below. Uh, People are always cutting through here. They're, They're parking in our parking lot and they walk through the courtyard. And I'm used to hearing voices like that in the evening. But they continued on longer than usual. I did my best to try to ignore them. I was trying to be productive, to focus on my work. But then I heard knocking, and I was like, ah, here we go. Somebody's downstairs. What do they need? And reluctantly, I went down, and I opened the door, and I peeked my head out. And to my surprise, it wasn't uh, uh, somebody needing you know, a, a room or a, a hotel or a, you know, a, a ride to a, a shelter or a bus ticket or anything like that. It was a, a, a lady and a young boy. And with great excitement, this young boy immediately asked me, Are you God? <laughs> I was a little bit shocked. Apparently the woman had been teaching her grandson about God and how he could be found in the church. I have to admit, the boy seemed greatly disappointed when I told him that I was, in fact, only an assistant pastor. But he asked again. He was persistent. He said, is God here? That was a very good question. In the Lord's providence, it provided me with a concluding illustration. I wonder, how would you answer him? If God were here... How would we know it? I think John would say what he says here. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Now, John's not saying that we love perfectly. That's not his point. We all know experientially that's not true. We fail to love perfectly in all sorts of ways. Rather, he means here that love for one another is evidence of God's presence. He means that love for one another evidences that God's love has reached its full purpose. That's what perfection means here. It's the end of a thing. Love is a perfection of God. It's portrayed through the Son, and it is perfected in us. It is brought to the, the fulfillment of its purpose by the Holy Spirit. So that when we love one another, we evidence that God is here. Let me address you with a 
term of endearment that the apostle is so fond of. Beloved, as we enter into the new year, let us resolve to love one another. Let all that we do with and for and to one another be done in love. Let us not love as the world loves, but with the love that comes from the Father, through the Son, and by His Holy Spirit. With this divine and supernatural love, let us love one another. And then we will know that God is with us, that His Spirit is powerful, that His Son's sacrifice is effectual, that His love is perfect, and He has given it to us. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, what wondrous love is this. And yet we acknowledge that it is not a love that we can muster up within ourselves. How utterly dependent are we upon your Holy Spirit to heed this exhortation from the Apostle to love one another. It is difficult sometimes, it seems impossible to love with this supernatural love. But Lord, we pray that you would make us able, that you would manifest to us by our love for one another, that your gospel is true. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.